I don't want to be compared to anything else. It's I just want to be on an island over here and whatever else they might be thinking about doing, it's it's on a whole a Grand Canyon distance away. It's not a slight twist away, right? It's not 20 cents away. It's it's turning left versus turning right. And that when you get differentiated enough that you have to call it something different. You're categorically different. It forces a choice instead of a comparison. I don't throw darts no more. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, Closers, to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, talking as fast as humanly possible, as usual, Jordan Whala. Today, I have a special guest. I'm super excited to interview none other than Andrew Smallwood. You've heard of the guy. You've seen him around. You're familiar with his work directly and indirectly. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about how he got into this industry, how he's thinking about what's changing, what's staying the same in the industry, and a whole lot more. Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Andrew, you and I met at IMN, which is happening tomorrow, about two years ago, I think it was. That sounds right. The last time IMN was hosted, it was in Dallas. I vividly recall, no, you know, I think it was maybe longer back than that. Somewhere around there, but that's that's what it was. It was an IMN event that we met at a trade show. We have a common friend Stephen Ryan. Yep. Who I saw you got to hang out with just recently. I was super jealous. <laughs> I have some, there's some concentric circles that kind of connect us. We know some common people have some common interests. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you wound up in property management. So if you just indulge me, brother, let's go all the way back. <laughs> Where are you from, man, originally? Yeah. So my, my parents' names are Sally and Jeff Smallwood. Uh, I don't know if we're going that far back. Um, yeah, so I, I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and I started a job selling Cutco knives right out of high school around a couple other jobs. And I got a, a taste for sales and a taste for really challenging myself, um, you know, to, to be in a type of job where it wasn't just like, hey, no matter what I put into it, I was going to get the same out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really the first job where if I really put a lot more into it, I could get a lot more out of it. And uh, I fell in love with that. And so I ended up working with that company for nine years, um, advanced through personal sales, sales management. That's where I met Stephen Ryan in 2009 mm-hmm. uh, and many other people I think that we might share at least acquaintances with. And then um, through college at George Washington University, that's how I paid my way through school. I ended up in Louisville, Kentucky, running a sales office, kind of the equivalent of like a franchise, if you will, um, running all of the sales operations, payroll, et cetera, recruiting functions, talent, all that stuff. And uh, But the product was like set in stone. Uh, didn't have to come up with that. Uh, did that for a few years. And then um, a friend of mine, Mark Brandt, was actually staying at my house Um for a NARPM Nashville chapter event mm. that he was in town visiting for, for this little company called Filter Easy. Months later, he said they were hiring and I was looking to move more into a B2B type of sales role. 
Um, and I flew out to Raleigh, met with Thad, the CEO, uh, a number of people that uh, people listening to this might know. And uh, in 2017, February, uh, accepted an offer to be in a, a regional sales manager position with the company. And then fast forward, here we are today. Um, and uh, my role is VP of revenue, which means I oversee our B2B marketing uh, to property managers and work with that team. I also work with our largest national accounts, which is anybody from the home river groups of the world and third party to invitation homes in the owner operator world. Um, and, uh, and then I work very closely with Thad on our uh, product suite and product strategy. So that is, uh, that is what I'm up to today. Okay, well, let's wind back to Cutco. It's okay. an interesting phase to me. It's an interesting organization. On the outside, it's selling knives. Any organization that can get that large selling knives in that way, there's there's some some sauce in there that's probably worth talking about. Who recruited you? How did you get into to Cutco, and and what was that kind of journey like? I, a funny story, actually. My middle school crush, Anna Hall started working with Cutco and she recommended me for the job. And I was like, well, if Anna Hall's working there, I'm going to check that out and go to the interview at least, right? Um, and uh, and I think she did like three appointments. She lost her scissors on like her second appointment and quit. Uh, <laughs> like a lot of people that work with Cutco, she was not there terribly long. Um, but anyway, that's how, that's how I got into it. And then, um, yeah, just started doing appointments and... Um, you know, I think one of the special things about Cutco that kept me there was, you know, they really have an accent on personal development and training uh, and developing people. Mm -hmm. And so they would say, hey, yes, we sell knives, but we're really in the like developing people business, mm -hmm. you know, and I think maybe next to like the military, if you look, there are people, Travis Kalanick, who's founder of Uber. Uh, was in Cutco. You've got people, Mike Cassetta, a good friend of mine, global head of sales at Square and uh, Compass, which recently IPO'd. Now he's at a, another company as a chief revenue officer. Um, I, the list goes on. Other friends of ours, Hal Elrod, John Berghoff, et cetera. A lot of graduates, long list. There, there's a lot of prominent alumni that have come out of Cutco. And I think it's because, you know, kind of like the military, it's like this leadership development kind of ground for a lot of young people that also get a professional foundation there. Uh, and, you know, I was able to, to get some of those same gifts for myself. And um, that's, that's a, a big thing I took away from that experience. You know, one thing I think a lot about in my first career experiences is that I had an identity that I didn't fully understand, but I had some level of an identity that happened to match up with the things that I did because I wanted there to be congruency. For example, being an entrepreneur was something that I always wanted to do, and it happened to be on the menu when I was growing up, and so I chose that. If it hadn't been on the menu, I wouldn't have chose it. What was on the menu for you of options that were respectable, good, praiseworthy growing up? You come from a family and a background of physicians. Was that was that in the mix? Was that a consideration? What were you thinking early on career-wise? You know, I would describe myself, and uh, fortunately, I've got incredible parents and very supportive parents, um, but medicine never really interested me. Um, you know, a lot of like the white-collar jobs, like attorneys, et cetera. I did go to a high school. I was telling Stephen Ryan at this at dinner that... Um, of my graduating class, we did not have a single 
person go to state school. Everyone went to Harvard, Brown, Caltech, like, you know, they're brainiac. So I went to George Washington and I was like the runt, you know, of my uh, graduating class to go to school like GW. But um, <clears throat> I always felt, um, e even in college, it was just like, the traditional path was really not for me and wanted a place where I could really um, kind of stretch my wings and more be, be myself. Mm. Um, and so I would say, you know, while Cutco was a way up in a lot of ways, it was a way out mm. uh, into, you know, a different kind of opportunity. And, um, you know, my friends thought I was insane. I was working from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., multiple weeks straight. And they're like, to do what? And I'm like, to sell knives, yes, over a kitchen counter, uh, probably with your aunt, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but and nobody was telling you, you what to do. You're calling your own shots in that I, environment. I got to set my own schedule. I got to set my own goals. I got to figure out how to achieve those goals. I got to figure out. Uh, and one thing I love about sales is just the feedback that you get mm. when, you know, hey, you do your appointments, you see your closing rate, you see your average order, you see how many referrals you're getting, you're how effective you're being all across the way. And I loved that immediacy of that feedback um, as a scoreboard to keep working against and developing my skills. So that that's a lot of what um, I found a lot of purpose in, in work early on. So in terms of the development and the mentorship that you receive, can you think of any moments, any conversations, any specific people in that organization where you felt like some shift kind of immediately following certain moments? Oh man, so many. Um, you know, I think one was um, just attitudinally or from like a mindset standpoint around handling adversity and uh, any sales role, right? There's going to be rejection. There's going to be adversity of different kinds. But, um, you know, one of the key attitudinal shifts and I had a mentor, Dave Powders, he was my manager for nine years, as long as I was there. Um who helped me see that, you know, you can view a challenge as something that's frustrating, something that's discouraging, something that's in your way, uh, or you can view it as an opportunity, you know, for growth, for, um, th there's something within the challenge, you know, that can be a gift mm -hmm. within the challenge. Mm -hmm. And that when I think of some of my greatest lessons and things that I took away from that experience, that was one of them where when, the way... I'm wired now, and this was not the way I was wired before, is when I encounter a challenge, it's it's motivating to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I want to break it apart. I want to <laughs> figure it out. I want to understand it. I want to figure out how to overcome it. And, um, you know, versus being discouraged by it. Mm. And, um, and that's helped me a lot since then. When I think about personal development, I think about the tone of how it's perceived and particularly in a top-down organizational way as a manager, personal development can be a really sincere thing that I take seriously and I'm using in my own life and I see you may be interested and therefore there's some enablement, some facilitation, or it can be a club I'm using to beat you over the head to get you to self-improve. In that type of organization as a category, there's obviously going to be a lot of washout, a lot of folks that just can't hack it in your mind, having worked with a bunch of different managers, a bunch of different people that are trying to facilitate this spirit of betterment. What did a good manager do versus just a so-so manager that may be using very similar language in both cases? Yeah. Um, 
you know, and something I think that could be helpful for the audience even is thinking about, you know, what gets people to bring their voluntary energy to work mm. is a question I think about all the time. And that there are many masterful managers who I've worked with before and people I work with now um, who are, are just great at this. But there's a, there's certainly a style of management or training that's, here's what I think you need to know. I'm going to tell you what to do. And again, there there are some personalities out there who they really want to meet that expectation and they're quick to step up to the plate for that. There's also a lot of folks like me who, <laughs> Thad is definitely this way. Other people, they got a little more rebellious kind of nature, independent mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. um, if you tell me what to do, I'm not going to do yeah, that. Let me find a way not to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so, so when I think about, hey, what gets people to bring their voluntary energy to work, it's it's a lot about not asking or not having all the right answers as a manager, but really asking great questions. And I had managers that asked me great questions, you know, and so really what they did was they just provided space for me to tap into my own motivations mm. that were intrinsic. Mm. What are my own goals? What are my dreams? How does what I'm doing today connect to those things? And they helped clarify a lot of that where I'm like, man, that's really clear now. Mm. Thanks for helping me get mm. there. Mm. And I was extremely motivated to do whatever was in front of me. I love it. So your time in this organization is around nine years, roughly. Is that what you said? That's right. All right. And then was there, a, did I hear it? Was there a jump between there and second nature? Yeah. That, so I transitioned um, 2017, February to, uh, to Filter Easy at the time. Got it. Okay. So you joined Filter Easy and what were you... What were you hoping or what were you thinking? There's always a big gap of like what we thought it was going to be like, what it's actually been like. What, you mentioned you were looking for some B2B experience. B2B just felt like a natural selling progression to kind of move up market a bit. Was that, what, what was in your mind's eye? Yeah, I, um, I, I frankly just didn't feel that was that much more for me to learn where I was. And so I didn't feel that sense of challenge that I wanted. Mm. And so I wanted to get into B2B sales. Um, because I felt there was a lot to learn there. Mm -hmm. um, and there was. And so I, I was very satisfied right away uh, with getting into that and learning, um, you know, how to, let me just put this contrast of when you're working with Cutco, it's like you've got one appointment to have an order form. And either at the end of that appointment, you have an order form or you don't. And if you don't have an order form, it's not okay. Lead a couple phone calls later, mm -hmm. and it, that's not the way that it works. Mm. It's it's either you have it or you don't. Mm. Um, and I had something like a ninety percent close rate. I mean, it was really the average order of the company was two hundred fifty. I think mine was eight hundred and forty dollars. Something like that. so. I just felt like I'd really, and I think about this even for people on our team of when is the right time for them to move to something else, whether it's within our company or potentially outside our company. If they come to me. And they say, hey, I got a phone call from this place. You know, like the three quick check boxes are, you know, have you learned everything that you can learn? Have you earned everything you can earn in this position? And, you know, and then burn is the other one. It's, it's are you burned out mm -hmm. or has somebody burned you? Mm -hmm. You know, is it, and if, if there's a yes, I've learned everything I can or earned everything I can or yes on the burn. Like if there's at least one yes, I'm like, take the phone call, you know, <laughs> but if not, then that's probably a distraction. And you probably want to stay focused where you're at. And for me, uh, 
you know, there was just so much to so much to do and so much to learn in the position that, um, you know, I really found a lot of sa- satisfaction right away. I like that we are articulated that take the phone call. I feel the same way. I find that there's a lot of lightment in lightness in alignment. If we're looking for alignment, I don't need to manage. I don't need to control. I don't need to bend you to me. If it fits, if it works, awesome. I'm stoked. And if not, that's cool too. <laughs> that's okay, you know? Holding some space for the fact that things don't always line up. But I find that when I grip and when I manage, things get heavy, both for me and the other person. I'd love to hear about some of the journey with Second Nature. You started you started as a sales rep, essentially. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously been a lot of shift in your role. In terms of the, the change in the product lines, how is the company different now than when you first started? <laughs> yeah, um, very different. You know, so we started as um, a filter delivery subscription company. And we started as an e-commerce business in 2012, well before I got there. Like a dollar shave club for air filters, uh, you know, as most people would understand it. And company was doing great, growing. There's some funding, et cetera. And I don't know, around 2015, uh, a property manager who, you know, a couple who had it on their own home said, hey, can I get this done for my rental portfolio that I manage. Well, that's an idea. Um, you know, and so they, they start, well, let's see about that. And by 2016, 17, they'd ironed out like, Hey, let's actually develop a specific, um, you know, service built around this use case for rental property management, which was around the time they hired me. So I think I was their third, 27th employee, um, third salesperson, um, you know, that they hired. And the salesperson were emblematic of the move into this vertical. That's right. Got it. Okay. So it, so things are just kind of heating up and getting started leaning into the vertical as you show up on the scene. That's right. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to today, we have over 250 people that work at Second Nature. Um, you know, I can't comment maybe specifically on revenue numbers, <laughs> things like that, but a, a lot of growth, a lot of really exciting growth. Um you know, and a couple of years ago, we rebranded to Second Nature because we kind of saw this bigger picture of where we wanted to head towards, which was how do we make taking care of homes feel Second Nature, right? And um, that that was really a lot of what our brand promise really was, and that it wasn't going to be just filters and niched out. And a lot of times, what I tell friends who are outside of the business is I say, like, you remember how Amazon, like, they sold books and for years, Jeff Bezos talked, you know, it's like people were coming to me and saying, you should sell this, you should sell this. And it was like, nope, not until I am the king of books, you know, Mm -hmm. am I going to move elsewhere? And I think our company did a good job of staying specific and staying focused for the right period of time. Uh, But the name change was a little bit of signal of where we were going. And, you know, now where we are is we have a resident benefits package offering that includes six different products. It's about to include number seven uh, coming up pretty soon. And um, it's it's been, it's going fantastically well for us. So. 
So in terms of some specifics, what about weighting or emphasis, this division, this experiment of residential property management? Can you comment on maybe the percentage of overall revenue? What, what kind of contribution it's making? It's about half of our business. About today. half the business. Wow. And so DSC had this head start. You could call it from 2012 to 2016. And uh, yeah, property management's grown, grown rapidly for us. And so it's, they're, they're both very substantial businesses at this point. So you were the third salesperson. What's the sales force size look like now? I believe we have about 40 people in our revenue team on the on the property management side. Great. So for my question, things have grown. Things are going well. It's exciting. Let's get into some of the more specifics of of the change. What mm-hmm. about just like the vibe, the the ethos? Not I mean, direct to consumer versus having a sales force of that size. That's a really different feel. What did you take away from Cutco that you felt like had some impacts. You mentioned Mark Brandt and Thad. Did both of them have some Cutco background? Yes, that's correct. And there's more people on our team. Evan Howard, Alexander Hurlman, Tyler Nichols. Coincidence? Christian Sargent. Conspiracy. How did we get her? How did that much um, Cutco influence import itself into the organization? Well, so I think I think part of what happens too is when you have sales openings and people are like, I love this job. I love this company. This is great they tell their friends about those openings. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, you know, that that's definitely how we've had more people come onto the team, you know, who had relationships uh, from their past and kind of in that organization. And it's a great uh, talent, you know, pipeline for us, essentially. It's, we, we know um, generally, hey, a lot of the people that have succeeded there are self-select for self-motivation mm-hmm. and, and different things that we look for, you know, in people on our team. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's not everybody. We have some amazing people on our team that have no experience selling knives, of course, but um, <laughs> that's, uh, th- there are a handful of us in there. So when you think about some of the distinctives that would distinguish this company versus some other company selling yep. air filters via property management, et cetera, what are some of just the obvious distinctives that may not be as obvious from the outside? Like, you know, the purple shirt, purple branding, fantastic, love it. But on the inside, What's what's behind? What are, what are the philosophical driving forces that you feel like lead to what you see on the outside? Well, yeah, let's talk about the purple shirts for a second. So, in the purple suits and purple everything, um, you know, a lot of times when I walk around a trade show, whether it's in the property management industry or even if you go anywhere in B two B, it's all blue. It's it's we call it Series A blue, right? <laughs> I mean. There's even a specific shade of blue that you see very commonly. And so, um, you know, I'm not a huge like colors guy or like branding and that that side of things guy. But I do think um, Second Nature has it in our spirit to find ways to stand out, Um, you know, and that we really believe there's an exponential power to being different as opposed to an incremental benefit of being a better version of something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's really alive in the organization and people feel that. Another thing I see people comment on is we just love to have fun. Like I remember uh, somebody saying like, oh, can you even have like purple if you're a serious B2B company? You know, it's like, well, we aren't serious, you know. <laughs> We're fun. And if you talk to property managers, um, you know, 51 weeks a year, it's not always fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think that really hits something resonant in our market. 
um, that we love to have fun. We love to have a good time. We love to, to cut loose. And while we are professionals and we know our shit and we, there's, there's a foundation of expertise around the things that our company's built on, um, that we take all that very seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. And I think that's uh, something that people appreciate being a part of a company like that as well, where they can say, you know, I think a question everyone asks when they're new to a company is, can I fully be myself here? Mm. And can I fit in? That's the question most people are asking. And um, when we bring people into the organization, we talk to the whole team about that of, hey, this person, you know, how can we make them feel as welcome as possible? Uh, show them what it means to be here, what they're going to be fitting into, but also that they can fully be themselves. And we've got a very diverse team as far as interests, the way people think, personalities. Um, and it's something I really appreciate about going to work every day because you learn a lot being around people like that. So when you say stand out, you think Seth Godin, Purple Cow, standing out in general, I think fair game, there's value there. That said, it's really, it's different than a, a value prop of, let's say, something along the lines of category design, where it's not just standing out, but something really intentional and purposeful and strategic. I want to get there. But before I do, I want to just kind of park on alignment with management. What I find, particularly as I get older, is that the best beliefs that produce the greatest results on my life in my life are ones that I just choose to believe. There's not a lot of evidence. There's no math formula. There's no spreadsheet. And even if there was the ability to facilitate that, it just isn't that interesting. I choose to believe certain things because I see patterns of, of it producing results in my life. And that's good enough for me. I don't need like a neuroscience analysis. When you think about the management alignment at your company, you think about forecasting, budget allocation. Can you prove purple's a good decision? It's tough. You know, CFO wants to come in the room. I've had those experiences. CFO wants to know, can you prove we're going to get value from helping people or being useful or creating value? What's the vibe like? And what are those conversations, that tension between proof, the literal, the functional and the things that you just choose to believe because it feels good, feels right. And you're all in. Well, I guess when I, you know, I won't speak for everyone at second nature, but I'll speak for myself. Um, the approach I've always taken from the very beginning when I started in sales, uh, when the company was filter easy was I'm going to deliver on my number. The company's counting on me to produce a result and produce an outcome. That's going to happen. Like I'm going to take 110% ownership of that. And once I'm there, I've earned the right to experiment and, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and try some things. Mm. So, hey, if we want to pick people up from the airport and do some like wild and crazy things that nobody's ever done before, you know, you earn the right to do those things. And it's very easy to come back to Mac, our CFO. He's great. Uh, listen, when you exceed your revenue target for the quarter, uh, your CFO is not asking you those mm. kind of questions. Mm. And so I think, uh, I know Bryn's here. In, in marketing, I think there's a lot of challenges with this of like, do we start a podcast? Do we do some of these things that maybe take more time to play out and everything like that? Well, if the only thing you're doing is a podcast and you're not hitting the revenue number, you're going to get a lot of scrutiny, you know? So you, <laughs> you got to hit the number and you got to focus on the kind of things that aren't just 
transactional and can really set you up for the years to come. And so I just want to hit the number as quickly as possible and get to those things as quickly as possible. I'm chuckling so hard. So yeah, Brent is here. She's off camera. She sent me a podcast. It was a Chris Walker State of Demand podcast where this very topic came up. How do I get buy-in? And his answer was, you get buy-in by doing whatever's necessary. And if that's paid ads, boring old paid ads, you do it. And once you hit your number, then you get to have some fun. You get to salsa bachata manenga your way into some creative <laughs> experiences that long-term do produce results. I mean, it's not you know fun. Fun is is useful. There's utility in fun, and that should show up on the bottom line. But the development of building a flywheel, it takes time. And not everybody has – not everybody's playing the long game. Some people have to be helped along the way or see a lot of evidence to really buy in. I would like to circle back on this confusing concept of category. Yeah. Category, you know, positioning, Jack Trout. You can back into this so many different ways. And the people – in the category game, make their own subcategories. And so it's slightly different language getting at similar things, but it's not all the same. Yep. It's not a it's not a slogan, not a logo, not a USB. Give me your take. Unpack the idea of category for me. Yeah. I love this topic, Jordan. We could talk about this for seven hours if my voice could last. Um, and, you know, the person I'll, I'll call out that has been most influential in my thinking on the topic is Christopher Lockhead. Play Bigger. He wrote Play Bigger. Uh, he wrote a book called Niche Down. He has a podcast I recommend called Lockhead on Marketing. Mm. And Category Pirates, the newsletter. Category Pirates. It's the best $200 I've spent, I can think of, in the last year. Um, and we introduced Chris, actually, to people at PMLX 2020 um, because I think there's... Even before you get to category, it comes back to, again, there's exponential power in different versus the incremental benefit of being a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit cheaper version of something else. Mm -hmm. And that I think the a lot of what I believe about marketing, right or wrong, I would say it's working for me, is uh, is that a lot of people get stuck in a comparison game. They're being compared to something else. And what you, the, uh, to me, that's the last place I ever want to be as a salesperson. Mm -hmm. I was very On heels. sensitive. In it to, I don't want to be compared to anything else. It's, I just want to be on an island over here and whatever else they might be thinking about doing, it's, it's on a whole, a Grand Canyon distance away. It's not a slight twist away, right? It's not 20 cents away. It's, it's turning left versus turning right. And that when you get differentiated enough that you have to call it something different, you're categorically different. It forces a choice instead of a comparison. And to bring this home for property managers, I mean, I'm on my soapbox, I guess. You know, I don't know if anyone's listening, but some people seem to be, which is if you're a professional property manager, you know, looking at your competition as the 75% or 67%, there's not a great number out there of people who choose to manage themselves, right? And when they're looking at you, are they saying, this is a little bit, like, I can collect rent, I can coordinate maintenance. I, they're going to do it a little better than I am because mm. they're experienced, right? But, you know, it's a comparison game. If you're in a comparison game, you're in trouble. Uh, that's a difficult, that's a hard road to win. It's a slog. 
Whereas, hey, if you can get massively differentiated and it's I'm turning left or I'm turning right, um, you know, there's a grand canyon mm. between what a professional property manager can do, the outcomes they create, the experiences they create, what someone can do on their own. That's when we're going to see the market shift towards the category of professional property management and that professional property managers should be cooperating, collaborating. Um, all of us in the industry, lead simple, second nature, et cetera, should be working on how do we grow the category of professional property management because that is good for everybody. And hey, when we get to 90%, then we can talk about competing against each other uh, <laughs> you know, if we want to. But um, but I, I think that's huge. Um, you know, If I was a property manager getting a call from a potential investor, you know, am I, am I just another property manager on the list, you know, out of the five or have I done what Mark Ainley's done and said, no, we're the responsive property manager, right? And here's the thing we do that nobody else does. And if you want that, then we're your pick, right? And if not, that's okay. And if not, that's okay. Right. But here's, here's who we're for. Here's what we've foundationally, the different about us that we've foundationally built our entire company around that we organize around. And that's really why category is not to me. I think a lot of people miss it as it's a marketing strategy and it's really not. It's a whole business strategy. It's really like you've got to differentiate on your product offering. You've got to differentiate on your business model. You got to differentiate on, there's so many levers you can pull, but the question is ultimately, how are you innovating and radically differentiating yourself from everybody else so that everyone else is compared to you and not you being compared to something else. That's to me what category is all about. It was a great, it was a mouthful. <laughs> I enjoyed that. That was, uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. I'm going to go back and rewind that a couple of times on the recording afterwards. One thing I like about you, Andrew, is that I'm really clear that you like small business. You respect and you appreciate small business. And that means a lot to me. I'll never forget being in a room. It was some event. I'm not going to say which. I'm, at, I'm at, in a room and somebody from another industry that was in here that was doing some scaling, disruptive, raise all this money, blah, 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 play. They're looking at a group of people I know, clients, friends, and they lean over to me and they say, I think they call them small businesses for a reason in a very kind of condescending way. And I thought, you know, it's so easy to take pot shots at small businesses. It just isn't that hard. There's so much dysfunction, brokenness. It's not this, it's not that. You don't have this management structure, all these best practices. So there's a lot of guilt trips that can that can come. But the purifying thing that I really enjoy is that it's the ultimate proving ground for great ideas. That Harvard Business Review case study that's promoting whatever, open book management, positioning, category design. It's fun to talk about in abstract it's fun to talk about with the $10 million budget. It's a whole nother thing to talk about with a 10-person business doing a million dollars in revenue. That's some real reality right there. So back to category, how it applies there. I always want to be mindful. Am I being indulgent? Am I introducing another guilt trip on my clients that's not feasible or accessible given their scale and size? What do you think that category... Give me some more examples. You mentioned yeah. Mark Ainley with GC. What does this look like in practical terms in a way that's really accessible for them? Let me give one that I think everyone could understand. 
even though it's not because it, it's and it's specific to small business. So, um, I had a chance to go to um, the Bay Area recently for a week long vacation. Went to Napa Valley, and um, you know some of the greatest examples of category design. Like, let's take a small business, and or typically small business like the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. Like, I just know the people that I'm admiring and cheering on in the restaurant industry are are not the person who's saying I'm going to do the cheesecake factory, you know, in my own local way, I'm going to have a little bit of everything all over the place here. You know, what I love is the sushi burrito. Have you heard of these? No, tell me. It's like a sushi burrito. Mm. So, you know, you've got your, your wrap, you've got your rice, right? You got it. And it's, it's big. And if you think about it, it's like, okay, it's not just somebody decided I'm not going to try to do, I'm not going to try to fly in the tuna one hour faster than the Bay Area place down the street <laughs> that's already flying it overnight. You know, I'm not going to fight, uh, you know, to get the slightly fattier tuna. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to price it for a dollar cheaper. Mm. I'm going to do something very different. In fact, so different, you call it something else. And if you're like me and you love sushi, you know that sushi on the go is a fucking problem. Mm-hmm. Right, you can't. Uh, you got chopsticks. You got soy sauce. You got, and it's like you know, it doesn't travel very well, um, and all of that. Whereas now I've got this sushi rito in my hand. Great, I can eat that thing in the car on the go. Like there's there's a different problem being solved there, and there's a whole different just point of view that somebody took and said, "We're going to do something with this." And now you can find sushi rito places in probably most major metropolises, Chicago, you know, other places like that. Maybe it'll come to a town near you if you're listening to this. You know, to me, that's great category. Category design doesn't have to be you're the next Facebook, Amazon, this big, ambitious company. It means you're taking and breaking new ground and you're taking a stand for, you know, we've got a different point of view on things and we're doing something different over here. Mm. Um and of course, you want to do that in such a way where it's not something somebody else can just duplicate, mm. you know, in a quarter, uh, which is where I see so many companies in our space and elsewhere. It's like, all right, a technology company that tries to compete on features. Oh, Lord Jesus, please. We'll just stop please it there. now. Let's... But it's like, you know, anyone can copy your feature within a quarter if they really care to. And uh, they will. It's inevitable. That's right. Competing dollar for dollar <laughs> against companies that are 10, 50 times your size, suckers game. Yep. Lunacy. Yep. So Lead Simple is a great example, in my opinion. There's a niche down here of it's not just CRM, right? But you can niche on your customer and get very specific about a customer and realize there are unmet needs and nobody's really nailed this category for this group. And that's what you guys have done. And now you've expanded to, to workflow automation and a whole lot more uh, that's really exciting. But that's a great example because I would say in our space, when people think like the most valuable real estate you can possibly own is the six inches between someone's head attached to a couple of words, right? Mm. And Lead Simple owns that in our industry for CRM, mm. right? For property managers. That's valuable real estate, right? To own. Second Nature owns that for resident benefits packages, right? And there's more examples. You know, that's what people should be aspiring for, I think. So let's talk about resident benefits because this is 
super interesting. The pivot that you guys made, whatever you want to call this, uh, this is a, a triple sow cow, triple lutz. You know, this is somebody coming, a gymnast coming off of the the bars and landing, sticking the landing. I have a lot of admiration for the technicality of the move. In some ways, it's obvious. In other ways, it seemed very difficult and like a lot of trouble, a lot of good ideas from the outside or early on just look like a lot of hassle. Why would we do that? That's going to be a whole lot of work. And particularly for the practical people, you know, the realist in the room, well, did you think about this and this and this can go wrong? Resident benefits package, tenant benefits package, the idea, the concept, it's been around for a minute, right? There's been some different takes on that. What hasn't existed is a push button, easy button way to get it. What hasn't existed is organization of multiple multiple offerings under one umbrella. What preceded getting there? I want to hear about execution, partnership, and rollout. But what was was there some seeking? Was there a quest? Was there a question? What preceded landing on the RBP as something you guys were really going to commit to? Yeah. So, like I mentioned, when we were filter easy on our way to a thousand property management companies, um, you know, coming up on eight or hundred, eight, nine hundred at that point, and we said, um, you know, hey, we see a bigger potential here. And there's a lot of things that we've done that have really worked. I mean, if you, if you think about 10 years ago, everything is the way it is today in property management because somebody changed it from the way that it was. And when you look at 10 years ago in property management, how many ancillary fees and services mm. existed in, you know, there was insurance, but it, there wasn't a lot of great software integration support. It wasn't very well adopted. It was a thing that some people were doing for some residents. Mm. And then filters kind of became this thing of, oh, actually with every lease and every renewal, you know, we can solve this problem of people not changing their filters on time and make it really easy for them by it just being on their doorstep when they need it. Um, and we don't have to finance that. That's a resident responsibility still. They're going to pay for it. And actually there's a chance to share in the profit of that, right? And so that became a thing. And we realized, man, there's a lot more problems we can solve here in single family um, that can be like this and fit into the same kind of moves and flow that we've really, you know, with our customers pioneered kind of in the space. And so, so we saw that the actual terming of like tenant benefits package and, and we go with a resident as opposed to tenant, we like to say investor instead of owner, we could get into that if we care to, but, um, you know, a lot of what we saw with tenant benefit packages early on was a lot of people were saying, all right, here's all the stuff I've amenitized up to this point but maybe I can charge a few bucks for it. And so like, it wasn't actually very attractive on its face or as it was to us as we were seeing it being deployed in most cases. And they were bringing filters in to actually say, here's something real, here's something tangible mm -hmm. uh, to help bolster that value proposition. And they're tacking on a few bucks and just giving some bullet points. What we said was, well, what if we could actually deliver more value, solve more problems, et cetera, and there is a piece of this, maybe it's not monetizing it, uh, but articulating, again, the professional rental experience that a manager provides. Mm. Um, our CEO, Thad, talks about his experience as a renter when he had an HVAC go out and he calls the guy and he's like, yeah, I'll be down from New Jersey to North Carolina 
you know, in a couple of weeks or whatever. <laughs> it's like, you know, whereas if he'd been working with any of the people listening to this podcast, right, they would have submitted a property meld like within 24, they would have called it easy repair hotline, whatever, right? Within 24 hours, they would have registered their issue and, you know, they would have been using their vetted vendor network of licensed and insured people to get somebody out there, mm -hmm. not a stranger in the mm -hmm. home. Whereas like, we want more people to appreciate that difference again, because we're trying to help our customers be categorically different and put more distance between the accident and the professional landlord. So RBP is the way of articulating that to the market and to the world of this is the professional resident experience that you get from a professional management firm. Whether they work with second nature or not, right? We believe every company should be doing this because you want people to understand, recognize, respect, appreciate those things that you're doing versus take them for granted. Um, and that's a big piece of it. And of course, we said we we can bring products and solutions to this that really help this industry move forward. And um, a couple of years ago, we were saying, hey, filters are included in this. Here's a couple other vendors we think you should go talk to, by the way. Um, and then when we got through onboarding, it was like, I didn't get through the onboarding with them. I never even called them. Yeah, and we saw it was going to be this like 10 years, you know, to get a mile on the marathon that we saw. And so we said, okay, how can we get involved here to add value? And um, that started triggering, hey, actually, there's a lot of value we can add here uh, as far as not just getting it done and making an easy button, like you said, but also there's economies of scale, right? That second nature can bring. When you have a million units, you know, you, you, you can get different pricing, right? And negotiation power um, and different levels of service right across these different kind of things. And so we said, man, that's something we can help bring to our network of customers, um, you know, where they wouldn't want to do it themselves. And so I would say 99% of the people we talk to end up working with us on mm -hmm. it uh, for those kind of reasons. But it's, it's very exciting because we see dozens of products ahead that are going to be part of this in the years ahead. It's we're in like the second or third inning of it, I think. So you've rebranded, elevated, and therefore made something new for an existing category. Concept was already kind of known, but a lot of work went into kind of rebirthing and, and shifting. I mean, in all fairness, the, the concept of tenant so, benefits packages were was around, fair? So the, the term tenant benefits package existed, mm -hmm. and that predates us. So I want to make that crystal clear, which if, if that's what you're saying, that is true. I would say across the property management industry, it was not a known or understood term. And again, many people resisted it because it, it felt like fluff to a lot of people. And they were saying, this is a money grab. And that was actually a lot of the perception that was out there as we did customer interviews, everything out. That was around it. And we mm, said, well, mm, okay, mm. rather than throw it out and come up with something entirely new, we are going to call it a resident benefits package. And that's what you almost see everyone calling it now is you rarely see tenant benefits package and you'll see resident benefits package. And that's languaging that we've been, you know, putting forward and intentionally. And so I, I think, you know, so, so anyway, maybe this is uh, technicalities and whatnot, but I would say, hey, we saw an idea, but not the right things to really execute it, to really make it a category, to really uh, bring it to life. And so that's where we came in. Yeah. So where I was going with it was really along the lines of the intentionality behind it. This idea of it being a money grab, 
I don't think is unfair to the in in the sense that that is what it is for certain people. For other people, they really want to do something nice and great and fantastic and have a great experience. Part of my experience in small business is seeing these situations where folks see certain things as a means to an end. And in other cases, they see something as just the way they choose to conduct themselves playing a long game with that view that certain behaviors will lead to long-term outcomes. Let's talk marketing for a minute. Your average small business that is trying to market, this is a great example of something that's a means to an end. I don't really want to do it. It's kind of a pain in the ass. But I want to grow my business because I want a financial outcome or maybe I want to get it big enough to bring in some other professional staff so I can kind of step away from it. That's one way to view marketing. Another small business owner says, boy, this is going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be an opportunity for self-expression, for creativity, for using our values as a canvas to really do something cool. That's part of the nuance that I see you highlighting. The RBP can just be a, a functional revenue play. And I, if that's all it is, it's, you know, it's still pretty exciting. Or it can be more along the lines of really elevating customer experience. How do you view navigating that conversation, knowing that different customers are at very different ends of that spectrum at the starting point? So I definitely think it's true to characterize um, some different customers work with us for different reasons. And in many cases, the driving reason is profit. But philosophically, we're not aligned with folks who are really short-term thinking. And I'll just give an example. It's, it's rare, but there are property managers who will say things like, why would I want to prevent 38% of HVAC issues by getting filters changed on time? When I make money. When by... I make money on maintenance. Right. And so like, that's just not our customer. But I also believe that person will either come around <laughs> you know, or get pushed out of the market or get pushed out of the market long before, you know, we create some different kind of solution for them. Um, and so, you know, part of that is we're working with property managers who are saying proactively, we want to deliver value and the profit. Yes, there's a lot of profit. We were just at the PMI summit last week and from stage, the panels was saying, I've got my management fee. I've got my tenant placement. My number three source of revenue is my resident benefits package. My number three source of profit, right, is this resident benefits package. So there's no question there's a big business result there that's attractive to people. It's a byproduct of bringing value, you know, to the resident, to, the, to, the, um, to that relationship, right? And so I think, you know, can someone get away with five or 10 bucks or, you know, a few bucks here or there? We're seeing people push some things, <laughs> you know, so... Listen, I get it, um, but but that's not the norm for most people. I think most people are saying, I don't want tenant pushback. <laughs> I'm already dealing with enough of it. And so I want something that is going to create what we call a triple win, where hey, the resident is better off with this than they were before. Investors are better off and we're better off. It works for everybody. We want to design our programs where we could be anybody in the situation. And it would be fair to us, right? That's the lens through which we look through things and that people who are going to work with us ultimately do as well. So do some people come in and say, 
I got to, I can't deal with all these filter calls and I'm about the preventive maintenance and the operational efficiency. And then they discover the profit is a, a benefit of doing this. Sure. Like there's different things that drive them. Um, but philosophically, I would say we end up pretty aligned with everybody that we're working with as far as, you know, creating value um, and, you know, looking at value first and then, you know, profit as a scoreboard, you know, of how well you're doing that. So when you say philosophically aligned, I'm coming back to category. Typically with the category narrative, there's there's a problem, right? There's, there's something we're taking a stand against. There's some injustice, some wrong that we're trying to, to change. How do you think about that where where that fits in for, for Second Nature or the RBP more broadly? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things. So one we just talked about, which is the triple win. Like that's our point of view on the world is we want to think about everybody. And it's not just what you do. It's how you structure it, how you do it might be shaped so that you can make it a triple win, right? And so, you know, that that's, that's the name of our podcast, uh, <laughs> you know. So triple win is something you're going to hear, I think, more and more in the vernacular of property managers. And it's something we'd love to see of people. It's a way to approach any business decision, whether it's a resident benefit package or anything else, of saying how a resident's impacted. How are investors impacted? How's my team impacted, right? My bottom line, my business impacted. And looking at all of that and designing it in such a way where it's it's not trade-offs, it's not compromises, it's how do we do things in a new way that is a rising tide for everybody. Mm. So I would say that's a key part of it. The, the other you know, philosophical alignment or point of view or problem that we're talking a lot about is, um, you know, we've been using the words resident experience a lot. And I really believe Second Nature is a resident experience company. You know, resident benefits package, RBP, is our product, right? Our product brand. Um, but the category that we're playing in, in my opinion, is resident experience. And why is that important? And the word experience is intentional. We just had Joe Pine and 100 property managers on one of our live digital events talking about the experience economy. And if you look at, you know, I always draw this on purple paper so it's easier than <laughs> people listening, but just try to imagine bottom left corner, commodities and materials. You know, and we had the agrarian age, right? People collecting wheat, digging up metal, it's uh, trading materials, right? And that was the way hundreds of years ago, right? That value was exchanged. Well, people eventually figured out, okay, if I customize materials, I can turn them into products. And we hit the industrial age, right? And that was the mass shift that created all kinds of new value creation opportunity. And somebody said, all right, I'm not just getting the flour and everything else. I'm Betty Crocker, I'm Duncan Hines, and I'm making cake mix, right? That people can buy for the specific use case and they've got a product. Okay, what's the customization of the product? That would be service. And I think many property managers, Jordan, have rightly said we're in the service industry. That's been true. However, I do think the leaders and the forward thinkers have already started thinking, I'm not in the service business anymore. I'm in the experience business. If you use a birthday cake as an analogy, you've got the materials, the flour, the sugar, everything else, the birthday cake, right? Then you've got the, the, the cake mix, I should say. Then you've got like the homemade cake that you can just buy in the grocery store or the bakery, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a service provided to you. And then you got the experience, which is something like the party planner, 
right? And it includes the cake. It includes, you know, the cake mix. It includes the flour and everything up the chain. Uh, but it also includes invitations. It also includes live music. It also includes, you know, all these different things. And look at what's happening to the economic value on the way up. You've got pennies down here. You've got quarters right here. You've got dollars right here. And then you've got hundreds of dollars in the experience economy. And you can do this for anything. Coffee, right? Unprocessed grounds to processed beans to, you know, your local coffee shop where you can get a, you know, a, a couple bucks or quick serve type type coffee, something like that, to a Starbucks type of experience that's selling it for five or six bucks, right? And so I think property management is ready for this in the decade ahead. It will not be kind to everybody necessarily. People who are really stuck in a way of doing things or like mediocre property management, I don't think the next decade or two will be very kind to very average property management because a lot of what historically has been part of the service business is going to get commoditized. That's something that I believe. And so then the question is, well, how do you create value in a way that software can't come eat away in a way that other companies at scale can't just eat away? And you've got to look at how do I create experiences that are distinct, that are memorable, that are meaningful, that people are willing to pay for? And so that's been, you know, the big shift. Okay, well, how do you do that? Well, that kind of sounds like going to Mars for a lot of property mm, managers. Mm. And so it's like, where do I even start with that? And so that's what motivated us to say, well, you do the most powerful thing you can do to start moving this direction. You deliver, right, and improve your resident experience with a resident benefits package. And we work together on this and start moving this direction together. That's how we're helping. But it's much more than that. All kinds of opportunities there. You know, as you ask that question, where do you start? I think what comes to mind for me is you start with intention and permission to give yourself permission to try. Bryn here from Lead Simple. I love Lead Simple, but that feels like a given. Instead of telling you why I love it, here's Sarah Hatch from Hatch Property Management. We're very happy and I recommend so many people to Lead Simple because I'm like, oh my gosh, it changed our world. <laughs> it totally changed our whole way of uh, managing properties and staying in contact. It's the best business investment I've ever made. To learn more and connect with one of my teammates, go to leadsimple.com slash podcast today. You described, it was a beautiful description of the value chain, going from a quarter up to a buck based on just the consolidation of multiple pieces. You're building something that's completely assembled versus raw constituent ingredients. So that's an economic premise, an economic argument. If we get off that for a minute and we just say, what would I like to do? What would give me joy? And by extension of the fact that I would be coming from a place of joy would allow me just to provide a world-class experience for someone else. There's an emotional flywheel inside of organizations doing good. It feels good. You, you do that act. You go that extra mile for someone else. You see it makes an impact. You get that response and it just, it feels good. And so you do it again and the flywheel starts going and going and going. That's really rewarding to watch. And that feels a lot bigger than a financial or economic premise. If you think about what that is for you, the, the aspect of you or the act that you're engaging in that you would be doing at 50 other different companies if you were there. Because that's what I that's the way I experience you is that what you're doing, that that playbook 
would look largely similar at other companies. So divorced from filters, what is it at its at its raw core there? What's so attractive to you about the experience? Yeah. So I, I think um, you know a lot of people notice this about Second Nature, where um, and something I believe about great marketing and just business in general is if if the way you're interacting with people is not making them feel something, mm. then like stop and figure out how to do that. <laughs> because um, generally it's, it's not a matter of intelligence or resources or anything like that. Uh, let, me, let me give a shot to somebody else rather than my own story. So Evan Howard is here at IMN with us for this event. And I know this won't be produced in 24 hours, so I'm not going to spoil anything. But his dad makes like legendary gumbo. And they used to live in New Orleans. And he's got a prospect who's from New Orleans. Uh, and so he like had gumbo that his dad made packed up in this ice cooler and everything. And he's had it shipped. And he's going to be like getting this prepared and served to him. And like, it's like, okay, what are most salespeople doing that are showing up to this event? They're wearing their polo with their logo on it. Well, they've already done it. There was a bunch of cold email spam that already <laughs> went out in advance of the event. I got like four or five of those. They're tapping people on the shoulder. Uh, they're saying, hey, I want your time. Hey, I want your attention. Hey, I want something from you. Pay attention to me. Here's five bullet points about my product or company. <laughs> you know? And it's, it's a lot of noise, right? It's a lot of noise. They're on a trade show floor with dozens of other people. It's all blue, <laughs> like we talked about. It's a lot of noise. What Evan's doing is something that really cuts through that. And to me, it's an act of generosity and that thinking of how do we give first? How do we add value first? Um, how do we add value continually? How do we surprise? How do we delight? How do we personalize? How do we honor these people? How do we make these people feel how we feel about them? The level of appreciation that we have for them, the depth of that, do they feel it? And what are the things we can do to make that happen? And that's a discipline that if we were to give it a name, I would call it moment making, just because the front row world that I come from. And, you know, Moment making is something that's cultural at Second Nature, and it's why not just investors but our cuts. Like I read a Alex Yoder from Colorado. Do you know Alex? Mm -hmm. He wrote this comment the other day, and I posted something about what we were doing at NARPM Nationals later this year. Dozens of property managers are commenting. Alex said something. He's like, "There's no company I want to dominate more than Second Nature," and it's because of the way that we make Alex feel, right? It's the moments that have been made for him. And part of that is directly and continually through our service and the regular business interactions that we have. And we don't just take those for granted, um, but it's also the things that we do outside of that to make sure they understand how we feel about them that inspires that kind of feeling in a customer. And I think that's really powerful. And I think it's why a lot of people are betting on us to win the resident experience category because we're we're the experienced people. <laughs> we're we're about that. That's cultural. It's not Andrew Smallwood. It's it's across the whole mm, mm. organization. So what I think is interesting here is that there's this balance 
in this dichotomy between, okay, Andrew, I get it. We're going to be helpful to people and we're going to add value to make more money. <laughs> we're going to be useful and help people make more money. And it can, for some folks, that's kind of how it comes off. That's the takeaway. It's mm. like, it's this tactic, this hack mm. to expl uh, that is exploitative rather than accretive, rather than simply an expression of your personal values. And what I find so interesting is that I believe that that's kind of actually okay. You can start from that viewpoint and the premise is good enough that by going through the act and tasting the juice, and I really, I deeply believe in the humanity of everyone. I believe in that, that common element that when you do go through these motions, even if you're just going through the motions, when you taste the goodness and when you taste the reaction and when you see joy and delight and that you're really helping people, that that pulls people in. And some folks probably do start on the more transactional side of it, of something that that is meant to be experiential. But once you do experience it, it pulls you deeper and deeper in. And I can say that about myself. That was what my career looked like early on. I wanted to have a server up in the clouds running this digital business, making money. It was super distanced from the customer. And over the years, I can just say that I fell deeper and deeper in love with the customer. And there were some times where I had to back up and give myself permission. I remember getting this. It was a, an indictment that I took at a, as a compliment. I remember somebody saying, somebody in one of my businesses saying about something I was doing that was adding some value. You know, I get the impression you would do that for free. Like even if there's not an immediate sales attached to it, like I'm getting the impression you're enjoying that a little bit too much. That was kind of the implication. Mm -hmm. And it was like, uh, yeah, like I am really enjoying this. I'm really enjoying, I'm having a lot of fun here. Yep. And there's no shame in my game about it. <laughs> I believe that that is the reason that it actually works. Yeah. Yeah. Something I think is really important about what you said is let's say someone comes into second nature organization and let's just say whether it's where they are in their life or how they were raised or whatever, um, that they're just a more self-focused individual versus an other oriented individual, right? Well, listen, they can be taught all these things. They can be shown examples of all these things and they can say, okay, well, I, I want to hit my quota number. And this is a way a lot of other people are doing. And they, they could view it that way. But I think customers are smart and everyone's got a, a radar and a sense of like when it's sincere, mm -hmm. when it's genuine, when there's strings attached. Um, <laughs> you, I mean, you feel that. And I, I just don't think that that person is not going to last in our organization, um, you know, for a long period of time. So I think it, it it's culture. It's something that we, it's something we look for in people. Like I want to find the people who I'm like, you know, tell me about a time where you just made somebody's day and like what you did. And it could be a family member for their birthday party and how they went to the 40 people closest to them and got them all the right personal letters, record video clips and they put it all together for them and like made this out. Like that's what, that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for the people who are intrinsically mm -hmm. wanting to build relationships like this, mm -hmm. like the way that we do, that's who's going to fit, you know, in our organization. And I think our customers feel that. And, you know, to your point, yes, they know we're doing business, 
Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not a nonprofit. Second nature is running, um, you know, running a business. Um, stuff has to make sense uh, at the end of the day, you know, but I think if you, it, it takes a lot of courage. Um, it takes a lot of courage to make the first move, mm -hmm. to have that mm -hmm. opening bid of, of mm -hmm. generosity. Mm -hmm. And I think for us, we've just said, we're willing to do that. We're going to push that very far. Uh, and it feels good. And when it doesn't always pan out or it doesn't pan out on a timeline, you know, like you might expect, uh, I can't tell you how many gifts I've given Jordan that are like just total duds. I don't hear anything from them. Lost in the mail. No, I mean, just, I, I, and, and there's a risk. I'll never forget after, um, after we invested six figures into a NARPM national week and people were just, I mean, buzzing. I remember you commenting on this very post. There was a thread and there was a, a person in it, you know, who was basically just saying, yeah, second nature is just after your wallet, you know, basically is what they were accusing us of and that there was nothing genuine or sincere mm. behind us from 6 a.m. to 12 midnight picking people up from airports and everything we were doing. And, you know, there's always a risk to being generous and the risk to being generous is someone will feel left out. Someone will feel overlooked. Someone will question your intent. Mm. Like, those things will always happen. But guess what? If you're not generous, they're still fucking doing it. <laughs> and you've given them no proof to the contrary, right? Yeah. You're still just another salesperson trying to get my time. Into, like those people are going to be skeptical and critical no matter what. And the incredible thousand plus companies that we work with, they're full of people, I think, who they respond to generosity. Um, you know, they respond to that. They, they, that something resonates in them when, when it hits. And so that's a risk worth taking in our opinion. So you've shared a lot about the construct of where you're coming from. It's taken time to develop, a lot of experimentation. How do you get out of your own head, man? You know, you and I have our own view of the world and it's working for us to a degree. I'm, I'm relatively happy in my life. I find myself generally a happy and fulfilled person, but I also find that for me, the chase of a breakthrough, <clears throat> the chase of a shift in perspective is a constancy because I've had a couple of moments where I was really clear on how certain things worked. And I had to get a nice little backhanded slap by life through a conversation, through an experience, through a moment. And not in reflection, but in that moment, I could really see clearly that things were different than as I perceived them. Those shifts for me have been really instrumental. Um, I, you know, it's probably less than, than five that have had the biggest impact on me. I crave that. I desire it. It's rewarding. It's not everyday life. I don't have any illusions about that, but I do seek those things. What do you do to get out of your own normal, the normal that you like and that you're happy and you're content with, but in the pursuit of continuing to get better? What does that look like for you? Yeah. So, you know, what comes to mind for me is I've got a mantra that I live by, which is Every time you see me, you're going to see a better version of me. And it it forces me to like 
if I've been in my comfort zone for too long, which is like a few hours, then, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking for how can I interrupt my own patterns? How can I, you know, how can I, like, what can I do next to take things to the next level? And it's not about chasing something external. It's not about climbing a mountaintop and, you know, hey, I've got to do this so that I can get this thing. Um, and pretty early on, I just realized that wasn't that fulfilling. What was fulfilling was just the process of personal evolution, you know, improving. And, and to me, a big reason I'm so motivated to do it is because it means I've got more to offer other people, right? When you have that moment of insight, like you talked about, when you have that moment of that shift, that transformation, it means you can help other people along the way. It means um, you've got something that you can share, that you can offer and give to other people. And so that's a lot of you know, what drives me. And, and I would say good routines and habits that give you a personal system for doing that. You know, whether it's a morning routine, um, you know, I love to read. I love podcasts. I lo so I'm constantly stimulating myself with uh, new ideas. Like to me, books are still the ultimate hack. It's like somebody put five years of their life mm. and I got it for 20 bucks, you know? <laughs> I mean, deal of a lifetime. Um, anyone who's written a book probably, <laughs> probably appreciates that. So there, you know, but whatever it is for you, um, whether it's podcasts, books, conversations, et cetera, um, you know, to me, I, I, I just want to put myself in situations where I'm learning new things all the time and putting those into application so that it's actually making a difference. And once that's done, hey, there's an opportunity to help and share, uh, you know, what's been learned here with other, other, other people. Maybe you can help them. So you mentioned that you're a bit of a book junkie. It's relatable. What are some of the best things you've read over the last 12 months? Well, we talked about Play Bigger. Uh, yeah, that's a book I recommend a lot. I can um, vouch for it. It's great. I'm on my second read. It's fantastic. You know, some of my favorite reads, uh, I love Jim Collins. I've read all his books. BE 2.0? Just got that one. I haven't opened it yet. Rock solid, man. I'm um, looking forward to that. Um, you know, th that's a big one. Um, you know, Jim Collins has been very influential for me. Seth Godin, I've read three, four, five of his books. Uh, Lynchpin, uh, The Dip is a great one, short one. feels like he's got 20-something books out there. So yeah, there, there's a lot. Um, what about outside the business genre? Outside the business genre? You know, I, I don't read a lot outside of business, actually. Um, but I do... So like reading, I don't go there. But I think it is important not to like myopically be in just the uh, business, <laughs> you know, self-help or business develop um, business development world. And for me, actually, food taps into that for me. And I'll explain, which might sound kind of funny, but when I go to fine dining restaurants, a lot of it for me is I'm paying attention to a lot more than just the bite that I'm eating and the flavor and everything else. Like I'm watching the kitchen. I'm often asking for tours, like meeting the people back there, understanding what's going on and into it. And the reason I love going to like three-star Michelin restaurants is here's somebody again who said, I'm not just running a cheesecake factory. You know, I'm doing something very different. 
And you do see the the restaurants that are commanding the highest dollar amount. Again, they're in this experience economy, right? They're not just delivering a service of preparing food. They're creating a whole experience around the whole thing. So I love being immersed in that. And that's been influential on me. And um, I just love seeing people give their absolute best to something. And that's what it takes, um, you know, at Chicago, at Alinea, you know, a oh, three-star mm, Michelin restaurant mm, like that. Mm. That's what it takes at a French laundry. It's what it takes, you know, at, um, at, at these level of restaurants. And so for me, like that fuels my soul. I love the food. I love the wine. I love the people. I love the conversation that happens. Um, but the whole experience for me connects me to something um, that really fuels me up of just like people really pursuing and pushing the limits of excellence and and create getting creative, getting generous with the kind of experience that they're creating. Um, that's really inspiring for me. I can see the appeal, the restaurant tour literary genre is actually really interesting and rewarding to me. Think about Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. Think about um, Dan Charnas has a book called Work Clean. Have mm. you ever, ever come across that? I haven't heard that. Fantastic. It's all about the philosophy of mise en place. Yeah. All of the instrumentation and the efficiency that goes into the act of working in a high pressure environment like that. I think there's, there is a, an, really interesting aspect to the tactile, very intense environment of working in a kitchen. There's so much going on that really can't be appreciated from the front of the house. I love the reference there. So as you think about the restaurant experiences that you've had, what's, what sticks out? What's like top three? Oh man. Um, so I'll say single thread farms, which is in Heldsburg, California. It's a little bit North of Napa. I, I know exactly where it is. I love that little town. Awesome. But I um, haven't been there. Contemporary American-Japanese kind of fusion. You're going to get, I had a three-hour lunch there, 18 courses. <laughs> it was insane. Um, that comes to mind. Um, Alinea because, so I'll just give people a snapshot here. So during the meal at Alinea, you, and you can go on Instagram and, and see all kinds of things there, but you'll see pumpkin pie that's like crystal clear. So it tastes like pumpkin pie, but it looks like a piece of glass with the consistency of, you know, a pie or jello. Like what? Blowing your mind, surprising. Uh, like it, it tastes very good, of course, but the presentation and the whole experience is really special. So that comes to mind. And I'm saving this one for last because um, it's really just a chance to talk about one of my heroes, which is Jose Andres. And if you don't know Jose Andres, he's got a ton of different restaurants. He's out of DC. I was in college in DC. Um, but what I love about Jose is he makes incredible food. Um, a lot of it is like Spanish tapas style, but he's got some different concepts. Um, but he's also, he's a philanthropist. He's a humanitarian. And I think it's, it's, it's either one world kitchen or world central kitchen. I can't believe I'm blanking on that in this moment, but um, basically anytime there's a natural disaster, Something happens in Haiti, something happens in Puerto Rico, something happens in New Orleans, something happens wildfires out west, something happens like everywhere all over the world. There, they, there he is. Uh, their chefs are, you know, making food uh, for people that need it. And, you know, I love it because um, his 
business. I just love spending a ton of money at his businesses because I know, A, it's a great experience while I'm there, and B, it's fueling this big purpose of, you know, really taking care of each other all across the world. Um, it's also brilliant marketing, by the way, because every time there's a natural disaster, guess who's getting press coverage? Mm. It's Jose Andres <laughs> everywhere feeding people out of the generosity of his heart, right? And so he's just, he's everywhere. Um, but it, Jose is just one of my heroes because it, it's about doing your very best, you know, at work and providing value for people who can afford it, mm. right? And also finding a way to serve people using your same strengths, talents, resources, capacity, you know, for people that can't. Um, and that, that really calls to me, uh, and a lot of how I, you know, view the mission of my life. The mention there of the philanthropic work is a relevant segue. I would love to chat a little bit about Front Row Foundation. Mm -hmm. The experience that I've had was through Front Row Dads, which is a, presumably an, an offshoot. I really appreciate John Vroman's work. And one of the things that I think is interesting about him is he's a great example of somebody I don't know anything about his his business, his finances. My operating assumption is that he's a great example of someone that could be earning a lot more money in a purely hardcore corporate environment, but made a hard pivot, was was doing well going down that path, something along in the sales arena. I know a bit, a bit about his background and he's pivoted into something for the sake of impact and pursuing meaning. I really appreciate the fact that the work that's being done there has it's it's accessible. Mm. It's clear that people are being helped. You would expect that with any nonprofit, but it's it's it is emotionally accessible for the people that are supporting it in a really in a really set of interesting ways. I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, about how you got involved with the Front Row Foundation. Oh man. Um so how I got involved with Front Row was during college. Uh, so I was 19 and I was paying $1,000 a month, <laughs> which was a fortune, uh, to hire John Berghoff as a business coach and mentor. Oh, wow. Wow. What year was this ballpark? This would have been 2007. Lovely. That's a delicious thought. I don't think John does a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching oh, right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not anymore. Um but I'm like, man, this guy's awesome. I'd love to learn from him. At 19, you're spending a thousand bucks a month on that. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Wow. Um, that says a lot about you, bro. Well, I was just like, all right, here's the number of knives I have to sell to be able to afford. Because he, was in, the, he was in the system, right? <laughs> John had a he couple background. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So it was, it was, it didn't, it was less of a leap than some woo-woo expert. I mean, he had a really direct firsthand experience with, with what you were trying to do. We were very connected. And he's like, man, there's some people you got to meet and you're going to meet them through the Front Row Foundation, uh, John Roman, other folks. So there's this, this marathon they're doing in Atlantic City. You should drive up and come. So I got in my hatchback Honda Civic um, <laughs> at the time and drove to Atlantic City and just supported. I raised a few hundred bucks and then um, just supported and met these people. I'm like, wow, these are awesome people. And that's what drew me to it actually at first. Um, and then I remember probably a year or two later, I remember telling John Roman, I'm like, Hey, I just want you to know, like, 
you're incredible. Like we're friends for life. Uh, I'm like, but if I'd never met you, if you didn't exist, it's like, I'm like, I would love front row and front row would have my heart forever by that point. As I got more into the cause and more connected to the cause, um, you know, I just love that. And I think part of it that connected me was coming up in a medical family of doctors and doctors and doctors. I believe a lot in medical research and, you know, different ways of approaching charitable giving that have that kind of angle to it. Uh, and I do still support that, but inevitably there are families every day who are working with the medical community, trying to get good news and the medical community just can't give them good news. They got to give them bad news. And so what does a community around that family in that situation do, do for them? And if the answer is just feel for them, you know, that, that is one option. The other option is, Hey, we can still make a moment happen for this person. Mm. And no matter how long their life is, Mm. I believe the way that we measure our life at the end of it is the meaningful and memorable moments that made it up. Um, and so it's like you can you can make a moment happen. What John Roman says is no matter what seat you're given in life, you can choose to have a front row experience. And the founding of the charity is rooted in he's at a Jason Mraz concert a few years before what I'm talking about now. And, you know, he's in the back, like nosebleed type section, right? But down in the front, there's this gaggle of girls who are going insane for Jason Mraz, right? Anybody who's been to a concert, they they get it. You know, they've seen what it's like up there in the front row. And in the back row, people are like kind of mumbling the words and like a little sway back and forth maybe, but not a lot going on. And he just decided, wait a minute, it doesn't have to be like this. I can have a great time back here and just throw my hands up, have a great moment and just fully enjoy what's going on here. And so he did. And so no matter what seat you're given in life, you can always choose to have a front row experience. And that really resonated with me. And, and for people in these kind of situations, hey, we can, we can still create what makes life meaningful for all of us, you know, for these people while they're here with us, even though they're being really challenged by something going on with their health. So that's what connected for me for the charity. I dig it. I love the emphasis on experiences. I think of a couple of different charities that are focused on helping people in dire circumstances, but there's definitely some nuance here. Think about like Make-A-Wish Foundation, not necessarily experience focused, definitely focused on making an impact. The thing I like about experiences is it's being talked about maybe in, let's say, a, a terminal end of life situation, but we're all kind of in an end of life situation. Like our number is going to come up. You read some of those reflections around 80 year olds, 90 year olds, and you ask, what would you do different? What's your advice to your 20 year old self? And if you distill the common buckets, the feedback, things like, I wish I had been myself. I wish I had said yes. I wish I had said no. I wish I had had more friends. I think a lot of this stuff can be boiled down to really impactful experiences where people felt alive, people felt authentic, like to really be themselves, to be seen, to be witnessed, and to witness other people. And that's a beautiful aspect of the humanity that is common for all of us. And if that can be pulled and bled 
into business some way, it only feels right and fair. You know, I tell a lot of people, Andrew, is I spend more time at work than I do with my family. And it's not because I'm become some sick workaholic. It's just that's kind of how it works. I'm working nine to five. I see the kids after that. My kids are young. They go to bed at eight. I spent the majority of my day at work. I choose to believe without evidence, without a spreadsheet, I choose to believe that there is meaning and joy in my work and it's my job to discover it and to believe that that is going to lead to financial outcomes because it's been my experience thus far. In the times where I wasn't interested in discovering that and I was commodifying myself through having a really transactional relationship with myself and the work that I was doing, that's a tough road to hoe. The um, the way that we're talking about experiences can be these kind of peak mountain moments. I dig that. What I want more of is day-to-day little moments, mm. just to fully yes. be in someone's presence. That's That's the miracle that I've experienced over the last six months that's been incredibly joyful Mm. and so you know let me tie a couple things together actually here that you set up nicely intentionally or not you talked about make a wish to bring this back to category design for a second so make a wish is a wish granting organization and when i remember when we were building front row i asked john roman i'm like dude, why don't we just take the hundreds of thousands of dollars we're raising and give it to make a wish, right? Easy. <laughs> like why, that would be so much easier. Uh, why, don't, why don't we do that? And the answer is because Front Row is not a wish-granting organization. We're a moment-making organization. Categories on. So there's a new category in the nonprofit space, a new idea, a new point of view, and it's about experiences. It's about moment making and that, hey, like, how do you live a great life? Well, you know, you live great years. How do you live great years, great months, right? Great, great months, great weeks, all the way back to the moments, right? The day-to-day moment and being, it's about power of the present moment and fully being present. It's bringing everything, all of the hope from the future, right? That you can bring hope into the present moment. It's about bringing celebration, right? Everything from the past into the present moment. And again, fully embracing the present moment. That's that flow experience that people get. Mm. It's, uh, I'll never forget going with a five-year-old Cody battling uh, cancer to a Washington Redskins game. And this kid was shy. I mean, at the hotel and stuff like that, you just like, I was trying everything, handing him candy. I was doing all kinds of stuff and you just couldn't get anything out of him. And when he was at the game, I mean, he just lit up. He just came alive as a person in a way that his parents had said, they had not seen since his diagnosis, right? Mm. And that's the power mm. of experiences like this. But as important is what Front Row is about. We say it's a forever thing, meaning every year we're celebrating the anniversaries of these events, these recipients' stories like Cody, who I was just mentioning. There's, there's things we do to continue the relationship with them. Mm. And that's very different than make a wish, which is on to the next couple hundred thousand. I've donated McWish, great organization, right? But it's a different approach, Um, categorically different, right? In what they're doing. And 
to bring it to the everyday, like you were talking about, it's we create front row moments so that people have an experience where they understand, you know, the rest of their life, you know, they can live life in the front row. Mm -hmm. Again, no matter what seat, they can choose to have a front row experience. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they may not have $4,000 Lambeau Field 50-yard line tickets, but what we hear all the time from people is, you know, the things that I learned and what I experienced and how it felt that day, it changed the rest of my days. And that's what we're really shooting for, that people live a front row life. It's not just about a front row moment. Beautiful, man. I love the intention there. I see that. The uh, I see that. What, what beautiful nuance. A set of tickets. A set of tickets versus... An idea that hopefully can lift people up when they're in they're in hard times. You know, people are self-aware that they're in hard times. I do think about the gift of pain, the gift of suffering, this awareness that something's going wrong and therefore I need to be hyper-aware. I need to cling to the things that I can have as opposed to everyday reality where I'm fed, I'm clothed, I'm comfortable. Back to this idea of how to pattern interrupt, as you put it. I don't know if that's like an NLP concept, but to actually just have a moment where you can step back and ask myself, what's really happening right now? I like asking myself that question. What's happening? Or another great question is, is what am I up to? Hmm. What am I up to is a way of saying, if I'm experiencing emotional duress, if I'm at a place mentally where I don't want to be, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm high, I'm low, what am I up to? Some sometimes I find that some of the stuff that I'm up to is stuff I don't really want to be up to. And if I can create some distance from it and kind of reflect and reframe certain moments or conversations, there's an opportunity for me to get back to a place where I wouldn't I wouldn't describe it as control, but maybe just getting back to the real me. Mm. It's a weird thing to say, but I find myself going in and out of a lot of different ideas, awarenesses, consciousness, whatever you want to call it. Brendan and I were talking earlier about working and the grind. The moments where I find myself really grinding, I know I'm kind of off it. When I'm really grinding, I'm probably not clear on what's going on. Mm. I'm back to the safety of my DNA, of my Mexican-American, you bust your ass. You know, I got the impression from my parents, from my grandparents in particular, that organized crime would have been a better alternative to laziness. Mm -hmm. That seemed like that was kind of the implication that I picked up. So that's very safe for me. It's a really safe place to get to. But when I find myself there, it's usually coming at the expense of where I want to be mentally. When you think about where you want to be, what you want to be, how you want to be, at its simplest essence, what comes to mind for you, man, outside of, outside of work at the highest level? How do you want to be, Andrew? I would love the message of my life to be one of radical generosity. And that's how I want to show up, how I strive to show up. I do not always, <laughs> 100% of the time, show up. And, and that's what I challenge myself and push myself more and more towards. And it feels really good, um, really good when I do. You know, you, you talked about um, the ordinary moments and when you get into pattern, there's this interesting 
relationship between, okay, when you get in that repetitive mode, that's like where a lot of productivity really lies. Like I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly what to do here. And I'm going to do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And man, I'm churning out value, right? But uh, where I really find a lot of the juice for me is in the spaces where I'm learning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm pushing myself into places to figure things out uh, that isn't that kind of like, and it can be frustrating because I love getting results, Jordan. I love getting results fast. And, you know, there's times where I move from sales into more of this marketing world, right? To be successful in the role I'm in today. And, you know, it's a humbling experience to say, okay, I really don't know everything about this or even the first thing about this. And I got to get into it. And then further, you know, any interaction with another person, it can be as simple as I think most people don't realize how much can be done uh, to surprise and delight others in very ordinary moments that cost no money at all. And a lot of people look at, oh, look at these gifts and these things, right? And that's really not what it's about. It's again, it's about what are you making people feel? Mm -hmm. How do you make people feel? Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of that intent coming through. And I think about, I'll use John Vroman as a great example. Something he shared with me that he does for his kids is he'll take photos and print them out. And then he writes a little note talking about the strengths he saw in them that day, the very best of what he observed. And then that day, them being a great brother, uh, his son's names are Tiger and Ocean, right? So Tiger, you were being, I saw you being a great big brother to ocean today when you involved him and brought him in, you know, to your group, uh, and, and how that must've made him feel, you know, that was real leadership. And I'm like, holy crap, like this guy is dadding on another level. You know, <laughs> this is wow. You know, and you just think about the kind of memorable, meaningful moments that's creating for his son. Um, you think about, you know, just the opportunities you can where it doesn't take a lot of time, but it takes intention. It takes presence in the moment to see the opportunity mm -hmm. to make a moment happen mm -hmm. and taking advantage of it. And so, you know, that's how I want to be. Uh, that's where I want to be. And generosity to me is just the word that best describes, you know, how do I bring something to this moment? Um, a lot of people, th it, not as much in the charitable context of the word that I think a lot of people think of generosity is like, no, we're generating something here. Like we're creating something here, um, you know, that wouldn't have just happened naturally is part of the way I think about it. And so I'm looking for the generative. I'm looking for the opportunity to collaborate. I'm looking for the opportunity to get creative and, uh, and get myself to want to be in that space more and more. Mm. Love that. I love the fact you highlighted it's free. The best things in life are free. And when you find out you can generate that kind of an emotion or experience on the basis of nothing, it's kind of like a superpower. It's kind of addicting, you know, like we can have it right now <laughs> in this moment related to nothing for no good reason. Sometimes for me, the idea that life is going nowhere is something to reflect on. On the one hand, it's going somewhere. I got goals. I got ambitions. I'm trying to, you know, kick ass and take names, but 
I also like the opposite idea. It's not going anywhere. Like this is it. Like it's happening right now. And if we can't make this work, we're probably not going to be able to make anything work later. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you sharing. I love where we're able to land the plane and and end the interview. Um, I just want to tell you that I appreciate your work, man. And being in this industry with people like you makes it a whole lot more fun. I've been doing this for 10 plus years. The industry has changed. It's shifted. It's grown. It's gotten more competitive. There's more money coming in. There's more creativity. All that stuff is interesting. But I think the part that's most interesting to me is that it's gotten more fun. There's more stuff going on that just feels really good. And Brendan and I are probably going to riff later, but my perception, what I choose to believe, what I make up is that this industry is maybe more generous, more collaborative than some others. I see vendors here that like to work together and maybe it's because they're not all direct competitors. I don't know, but that's really rewarding. That wasn't necessarily that ecosystem and that vibe wasn't there a decade ago. So thank you for being one of the people that really adds a lot to that dynamic. Yeah. You know, Jordan, there's so many people I've talked to who I just want to say before we wrap, you know, they, so many professional private managers who are leaders in this industry that comment on the influence that you've had on them through events, through conversations, through podcasts. I, mean, you know, I hope to see you doing this more. You're so good at this, man. Uh, <laughs> so I hope to see you do this more and more. Bren, we got to get him doing the podcast again more and more. <laughs> I'm probably telling you to do something that you've uh, you've made like a disciplined commitment to something else. But uh, even though I'm stepping into that, I just, I really appreciate your leadership. I love your entrepreneurial spirit in our industry. I look at the companies that you've had your hand in and how much they're helping our mutual customers. And it's an impact that many of us feel, uh, even though you said, hey, we started this conversation kind of in the periphery, you know, there, there's a real ripple and impact you and the entire team uh, at Lead Simple, Profit Coach, Rent Scale, uh, that's really happening. And it's it's just really great to see. And we just want to pour gas on it over at Second Nature. We think it's a great thing. Mm, man, you know what? Let's just get, let's become direct competitors at helping our customers win. Yep. Like, let's just go mano y mano, bro. I'm down to like, <laughs> go hard in the paint with you on that. You know, win, yes. win, baby. Yes. Love that. All right. All right, man. Be well. See you in the next one. Thanks, man. Bye.